Hello and welcome. This is the Lannan Centre podcast and I'm Aminata Fauna, Director of the Lannan Centre. The following discussion, How We Die, centres on the ethical and moral questions raised by the Death with Dignity Act, which went into effect in the District of Columbia in 2017. The discussion was recorded as part of the Lannan Centre Symposium, Reading and Writing the Body, held in conjunction with Georgetown University's Medical Humanities Initiative between February the 6th and 8th, 2023. The symposium gathered together writers, artists, medical professionals, ethicists and journalists for a series of discussions, each centering upon the body as a site of social, political, cultural and moral debate. Here is Dr. Dan Marshalek to introduce the speakers and the panel. Thank you so much, Aminata, and thank you so much to the Lannan Foundation, who make possible these important and desperately, desperately needed conversations, like the one we're having today. Nearing the end of his life, Benjamin Franklin wrote in a letter to his friend and scientist Jean-Baptiste Leroy, um, our new constitution is now established. Everything seems to promise that it will be durable. But in this world, you know how it goes. Nothing is certain except for death, death and taxes. This may come as a surprise to some of you, but according to the Nonpartisan Tax Policy Center in 2022, 57% of American families paid no federal income tax. In this world, there seems to only be one certainty. When it comes to dying, the question is never if, it is when, and it is how. Today's event will tackle this complicated question using a variety of lenses, ethical, emotional, sociological, theological, practical, and others. Our discussion will be framed by two extraordinary speakers. We will begin by hearing from Dr. Ewan Gallagher. Dr. Gallagher is a critical care physician and assistant professor of medicine at the University of Toronto. He has published countless articles and book chapters on the topic of medical ethics and has a forthcoming book on the ethics of assisted death. Following Dr. Gallagher, we'll hear from Diane Rehm. Ms. Rehm requires no introduction in Washington, D.C., as a native Washingtonian and a longtime NPR talk show host with an audience of over 3 million people, Ms. Remus challenged her listeners to consider complex and sometimes uncomfortable topics. Her documentary, When My Time Comes, as well as her book by the same title, explores the very topic that we're discussing today, How We Die. Thank you. Well, uh, good evening. It's my real and very genuine pleasure and privilege to participate in this eminent event. When I initially received the invitation and looked at the lineup of speakers who are traditionally invited, I thought maybe a mistake had been made. But uh, it's really a, a pleasure to be here to participate and talk, discuss profoundly significant, profoundly relevant uh, questions about how we ought to die. Uh, the ideas and arguments that I offer this evening do not necessarily represent those of the organizations with which I'm professionally affiliated. 
Tonight we're gathered to consider the question of voluntary euthanasia. And I'm using the umbrella term euthanasia in a, in a very wide sense to refer to deliberate and specific actions by physicians to intentionally cause the death of the patient upon the patient's voluntary request. So for me, this term includes uh, assisted suicide. This is sometimes referred to as a physician-assisted death or medical aid in dying, but I prefer to use the term euthanasia for its specificity. And although I'm uh, deeply aware that differing positions on euthanasia are represented in the room this evening, I think it's important to begin by emphasizing that in a very real sense, we're very much all in this together. We are all faced with the predicament of suffering and dying. Our patients, for those of us in healthcare, will suffer and die. Our loved ones will suffer and die. And each one of us too will inevitably face suffering and death. Euthanasia is held out as an answer to this predicament a means of escape, and even of overcoming by having our life ended on our terms in the manner and time of our own choosing. We aim to liberate ourselves from the burdens of life and of suffering from the fear of being a burden and to uphold our personal dignity and autonomy. And the question is whether euthanasia will really give us what we want and whether it is an appropriate means of achieving those ends. While I think that those who endorse and those who practice and administer euthanasia, and I have many friends and colleagues who support and practice euthanasia in Canada, while I think they're well-meaning and sincere in their desire to relieve suffering, I'm here to persuade you that the case for euthanasia is profoundly forgetful of certain fundamental moral realities. So allow me to suggest very briefly four things that euthanasia forgets. First, Euthanasia forgets the true depth and nature of human value. So we all agree that people matter. That's why we're here this evening, because we all profoundly moved by the reality that people matter. But in what way, I ask, do they matter? We do not merely have extrinsic value, the kind of value that comes from what we can do or from our utility or our usefulness. We're not merely valuable as means to ends. Rather, our value is inherent to our person. We are valuable for our own sake. We are each priceless and irreplaceable, and our value is unconditional and unvarying. So for this reason, we hold, for example, that each and every one of us have certain absolute and universal human rights, that every person ought to be treated with dignity and respect no matter what. Now, if something is valuable, it's good that it exists. This is just what it means to say that something is valuable. And if you are unconditionally valuable, then it's unconditionally good that you exist. And I can't call into question the value of your existence without calling into question the value of your person. But this is exactly what euthanasia does. Despite its, uh, to perform euthanasia is, it, is to act as if it's better that you do not exist. But if your existence is not a value, then you do not have inherent unconditional value. So in this way, I argue, despite its good intentions, euthanasia actually devalues people. Furthermore, euthanasia treats people as a means to an end. We are ending the person in order to end suffering. So I would argue that the practice of euthanasia does not accord with the true nature and depth of human value. Euthanasia forgets just how much we matter.
Second, euthanasia forgets the body. As healthcare professionals, we spend years training to care for the body. The body, its structure, and its function are the subject and focus of all our professional expertise and endeavor. We are called healers because we profess to restore and maintain the body and health. Without the body, there's no medicine. But in our zeal to relieve suffering, we too easily forget the body. And euthanasia achieves its goals by destroying bodily function. So midazolam and one gram of propofol are aimed at halting brain function. 200 milligrams of, of uh, rocuronium are aimed at halting muscular function, especially that of the diaphragm and respiratory muscles. And 100 millimoles of potassium chloride are aimed at halting cardiac function. Are these actions really consistent with a professed commitment to healing? Rather than an act of care for the body, euthanasia takes aim at the body. It is something fundamentally different than medical care. Third, euthanasia forgets that ideas have real consequences for real people. Rosina Camus was a young Canadian woman who lived alone and in poverty. She suffered from multiple chronic illnesses, including fibromyalgia, but she wasn't dying. Nevertheless, she decided to seek euthanasia. And as she went through the evaluation process, she wrote to her friends online, quote, please keep all this secret while I'm still alive because there are certain things that could cause a medical aid in dying application to be declined, such as the suffering I experience is mental suffering, not physical. I think if more people cared about me, I might be able to handle the suffering caused by my physical illnesses alone. And elsewhere she wrote, whenever I try very hard to get my needs met, I am seen as being manipulative. I know I am hurting other people for having special needs, so I have decided that the best thing for me and for everyone on this planet is for me to obtain medical assistance in dying. On September the 26th, 2021, someone euthanized Rosina. What's going on here? How is this possible that a woman primarily suffering from loneliness and isolation was willingly ended by her doctor? Leo Alexander, a physician who spent years studying the moral devolution of the medical profession in Nazi Germany, argued in the New England Journal of Medicine in 1949 that a fundamental moral shift in medicine occurred once physicians accepted the idea that there was such a thing as, quote, life not worthy of life. This idea that there is life not worthy of life has real consequences for real people. It infects our social imagination in ways that we cannot initially anticipate. You see, the logic of euthanasia is inexorable. If death is an effective and appropriate remedy for suffering, then it might be effective for all manner of ills and ailments. You can't reasonably restrict euthanasia to end-of-life suffering when chronic illness, disability, and even mental illness can make life feel unbearable for many people. And many are tempted to believe that their own lives are not worthy of life. We care for such people nearly every day. But rather than reminding them of their fundamental value, rather than saying to them, we're glad you're here. It's good that you are here. You are unspeakably valuable. Euthanasia says, if you say so, then you're right. Your life is not worthy of life, and I'm willing to end you. Those of us with a social or professional status that constantly reminds us of our value, I imagine that's most of us in this room, 
too easily forget what it is like for weaker and more vulnerable members of our society who, are de who are, uh, feel that they have little to offer the world and who are tempted to forget their own value. Euthanasia forgets how dependent each of us is on others for a sense of value and significance. And furthermore, euthanasia forgets that some providers who become enthused about the benefit of death for suffering will be zealous in their willingness to administer it. One family member of a patient who, saw, who died by euthanasia told journalists in a leading Canadian newspaper that, quote, you, the family member, have 90 days to convince a doctor whose name you don't know and cannot directly contact to save your father's life, to pass on important information the patient might conceal, to scramble when the date is unexpectedly moved up, to make sure before the lethal injection that all options have been fully explored. It felt, he said, that if we wanted to save our loved one's life, we are actually in competition with the assessors and providers. Euthanasia forgets that ideas have real consequences for real people. And finally, euthanasia forgets that natural death can be beautiful. Death is unfamiliar and foreign for most of us. And the fear of the unknown is a significant driver of interest in euthanasia. Those of us who care for dying patients know that death can be peaceful, dignified, and even beautiful. As a young student, I volunteered at a hospice in Vancouver's downtown east side, possibly the poorest neighborhood in Canada. The hospice served patients dying with HIV AIDS or complications of substance use. Many of them were alone, utterly estranged from their families. As volunteers, we sat with the patients, we sang to them, talked with them, read to them, I remember seeing the palliative doctor making his rounds, the nurses gently administering the medicines to ease, uh, that brought pain and symptom relief to those dying people. And never even once did it occur to me that we needed to take action to bring death more swiftly than it was coming. It was beautiful to wait patiently and quietly for death, to help those people live to the fullest as death approached and to see them treated with dignity through the final days and hours of their life. Indeed, in all the years I have practiced medicine and in all the many hundreds of deaths I have witnessed, never once have I felt pressed to administer lethal drugs to deliver a patient from distress. The tools and approach of palliative medicine have always proven effective to uphold a patient's dignity through the dying process. I do not mean to suggest that dying is easy. Dying well may require time, effort, preparation, it calls for the resources of community and spirituality. Yet though dying naturally can always, it is not always easy, it can be a beautiful testament to the courage and resilience of the human spirit. So to conclude, the care that we devote to our fellow human creature, those who are suffering and dying, signifies the value that we put on them as a society. Our work in medicine reminds the world just how much we matter. Euthanasia, I fear, will teach us to forget. Tonight, I encourage you as we have this conversation not to forget. I invite you to remember. Thank you very much. Good evening to all of you. I am so thrilled to see so many of you here. 
as we speak about what is indeed the most difficult subject about which very few people wish to speak. And the first thing I want to do is to remind you of the pain and suffering that is currently occurring in Turkey, the place where both my mother and father were born. I am thinking about them in heaven today and glad they are where they are. The first thing I want to say is to tell you that what you have just heard is not at all applicable here in the United States. Euthanasia is a word we do not use because it is not legal. It is not legal. Information is power, and therefore the language we use is extremely important. Medical aid in dying is not euthanasia. Medical aid in dying in the U.S. is the following. It allows an individual deemed to be within six months of death by two physicians from their own physician and another to be deemed dying and within six months of dying, the individual must be able to communicate that desire to end his or her own suffering from whatever disease is operating. The individual must be able to self-administer, self-administer and ingest medication and only one in three patients who receive that medication actually use it. Medical aid in dying is not euthanasia. Euthanasia in this country is deemed as the painless but active killing of one who is suffering from incurable disease or, as you've just heard, from misery of one type or another. It may be terrible depression. It can be in Europe, in the Netherlands, 
for example, it can be because of Alzheimer's disease, which is not permitted in this country. When we think about medical aid in dying, we think about where it is permitted in this country. And there are only 10 states plus the District of Columbia where it is allowed. My colleagues, Joe Fab, Diane Naughton, and I produced a documentary, which I hope many of you have seen, called When My Time Comes. We worked on it for three years, moving from this end of the country, across the country, talking with people both for and against medical aid in dying. It is allowed first in Oregon in 1997. It then took 10 years after that law finally came into existence for Washington State to follow with its own law permitting medical aid in dying. Then came Montana by judicial order, which is still under some question. We now have Vermont, California, Colorado, Washington, D.C., Hawaii, New Jersey, Maine, and New Mexico. I want you all to know that when we looked for physicians to be in our documentary, we came first to Georgetown University and not one single physician here would speak to us, not one. And there, I tell you that the Roman Catholic Church in this country has been the greatest funder and the loudest opposition to medical aid in dying across this country which is why when I was invited to speak here tonight, the first thing I said was, I would be delighted, but I would insist that first you ask your president whether I will be allowed to speak on campus. And the answer was absolutely yes, which pleased me to no end. I want you to know that I am 
thinking tonight about my mother who died of liver disease on January 1, 1956 at Georgetown University Hospital in such terrible pain that she begged to die, begged to die. She didn't die for weeks. She looked as though she was 11 months pregnant because that's what liver disease does. My father, 13 years her elder, died 11 months later of a broken heart. I was 19 at the time. My mother was 49. My father, 62. Then my father-in-law at our farm in Pennsylvania, living alone, suffering with diabetic retinopathy, which totally took his vision, took his own life. He was 67. And finally, my mother-in-law at 92 took her own life, feeling she could not live any longer and have any pleasure in life. I said finally, but of course, my husband of 54 years, John Rehm, suffered from Parkinson's disease. He was in a nursing home. He could no longer stand on his own, feed himself, shower, toilet himself, nothing. When the doctor told him that in the state of Maryland, medical aid in dying was not permitted. John turned to VZ, which many of you know. He stopped eating and drinking. It took him 10 long days to die. My belief is that as at the beginning of life, at the end of life, we deserve choice. If you want everything that medical science can offer, I support you 100%. If you believe that God should be the only decider, I support you 100%. And if you decide 
as the end of life inevitably draws near, you beautiful young people. You should have choice, as should I, at 86, perhaps nearing the end of life, I have no idea. But I would hope that you would respect my choice for medical aid in dying. And I am honored to have been allowed to speak with you this evening. Thank you. Good evening. Um, my name is Michael Potash. Um, I'm a palliative med medicine physician and faculty uh, for the Medical Humanities Program. Um, first, um, thank you to both of you. That was, that was a great start to the evening. Um, I want to thank everybody who's already, you know, we've already had one great night. We're in the middle of a second, so this is a, a really a beautiful week. So I want to thank uh, the Lannan Foundation, um, Director Aminata Forna, and um, Patricia Guzman, uh, the Medical Humanities, of course, Director Lakshmi Krishnan, who can't be here tonight, and last year's acting director, Dan Marshalik, uh, Samantha Hostler, I don't know if she's here, but she, she helps us uh, um, with all of our uh, medical humanities stuff. Um, I want to take this opportunity uh, to thank um, all of the faculty here on campus who's uh, you know, been so generous with their time and wisdom for those of us from the medical campus. Um, we, we don't often get to say thank you, so I just wanted to say thank you. Um, and of course, I really want to thank all the students uh, who are all here tonight. Um, you know, you guys sign up for the medical humanities classes, which is really cool. Um, and you're very generous with your ideas and your stories, so thank you so much. <clears throat> so, as we've already started to hear, tonight's topic uh, is a hard one. Uh, we're speaking about lives ending, and more to the point, ending lives. Um, you've already started to hear that in our country uh, and in our world, there's an ongoing conversation about whether people should have the right to choose the timing and circumstance of their death, and of course, whether clinicians and the profession of medicine should be in the middle of it. Uh, we've already heard a bit about uh, the experience of Canada to the north, and of course, uh, Europe across the ocean, uh, where euthanasia is legal. Uh, in the United States, um, medical aid in dying, as you've heard, is illegal, is illegal in 11 jurisdictions, which means that one in five Americans have access to this option. And this is likely to grow in the next few years. This raging debate is not surprising. Uh, questions of living and dying are the most raw and the most personal. Uh, they tap into our insecurity, our terror, our awe at living life under the glaring light of the cosmos. There is nothing more human than to wonder what is our place in this world and what will remain when we are gone. So this conversation is about big questions. Uh, can, su can suicide ever be rational? Is killing ever justified? And what is the role of medicine when it cannot save us? But it's also about the little questions the tender, quiet ones asked in the fluorescent glow of the sterile exam room. Doctor, will you help me die? It's so simple, 
and yet so enormous. Those words hold all of what it means to be mortal. Fear, despair, courage, desperation, dignity, rage, and doubt. And how should we answer those requests? Not just one human to another, but as a trusted caregiver to a vulnerable patient. And that is the topic of tonight's conversation. So I believe it's time to introduce you to the rest of the panel. Um, you've already met um, our first two speakers. Um, and in addition, I guess I'll just start uh, telling, telling our audience about our panel here. Um, we have Dr. Lydia Dugdale, who is the Dorothy and Daniel Silberberg Associate Professor of Medicine uh, and Director of the Center for Clinical Medical Ethics at Columbia University. She's written two books very pertinent to tonight's topic, uh, Dying in the 21st Century and the Lost Art of Dying. Dr. Catlin Roth is a professor of medicine and the previous director of the Division of Geriatrics and Palliative Medicine at the George Washington University Hospital. I hope I won't embarrass her by saying that she is also a mentor to many geriatricians and palliative medicine clinicians here in the district. Our moderator for tonight's panel is John Donvan. Mr. Donvan spent over three decades as an ABC News correspondent. He's currently the host of the debate series, Intelligence Squared. He's also the author of the book, The Story of Autism, which was a Pulitzer Prize finalist. So I'd like to welcome our, all of our panelists to the stage. That was really beautiful remarks, Michael. As I was listening to, I was thinking, I'm, I think I'm listening to an English major who changed halfway through to go into the hard sciences. That was really lovely. Um, I'm John Donvan, and I've been asked to moderate uh, this conversation. And I think um, the reason I was asked to do this, um, as was just mentioned, one of, one of the things I do is moderate debates for a program called Intelligence Squared, where we aim to, to prove that people can disagree in ways that are civil and shed light, and uh, to bring real arguments, but very, very importantly, actually to listen to one another. And this is a conversation that is obviously so fraught and so controversial that I think there was a decision that maybe it would be useful to have a little bit of that brought into the conversation. So I'm going to try to do that. Um, I think it's clear that we're, that we're talking about something where, where, where one side's values actually may represent a threat to the other side's ability to operate according to the principles they believe in. So the stakes are very high. But I also felt that I heard in the opening statements that you do understand at least what the other side is saying, that you respect that there's a good faith position coming from the other side. And I just wanted to encourage in this conversation the spirit of inquiry from one another and, and with one another, what I think sometimes is missing from the conversation is that while you can recite the other side's arguments, you're not very often in a position where you're challenged by the other side's arguments. And I've, I took notes on what you were each saying and would like to ask, ask you to address, and I would like to bring this up, some of the points that each was saying rather than brush them aside and, and continue to make your affirmative case because I think that would actually shed light. I also want to ask your permission to interrupt you if that seems appropriate to me. And may I use first names because not all of us are doctors do. here. Although 
Uh, and in terms of uh, my operating in a very impartial manner, I intend to do that with the exception of saying, holy cow, I'm interviewing Diane Reem on the stage. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanna, we've, we've brought uh, two new participants to the conversation, and I want to ask each of you to tell us uh, who you are, one at a time, and where you stand on the conversation, and, and to reflect for just a couple of minutes, not as long as the opening statements, uh, on what you heard in the opening remarks. And since you're farther away, Lydia, if you could tell us first who you are and how, where you stand in this conversation and what you heard. Wonderful. So um, good to be with you all tonight. I'm a general medicine doctor and an ethicist, as was mentioned. And um, I am a big fan of self-determination and being able to make decisions for yourself to govern your own life. And yet, I find myself time and time again having to come to the defense of patients who doctors feel are sort of at the end of their life and maybe we shouldn't keep going. And yet the patients themselves or their family members are not at that point. So I practice in New York City. Physician-assisted suicide is illegal in New York City. And yet I'm finding myself constantly coming to the defense of patients and trying to make a case for honoring their, their decisions to remain alive. Um, there seems to be, uh, in, in many places in this country, um, uh, well, I'll, I'll just say this. I, I think all of us make assessments about what sort of lives we want to live. And physicians are in a very easy position to project that on the patients for whom they care. And you add to that the reality that it is very easy for us to make patients dead, and it becomes um, a difficult milieu. In my couple of minutes, I just want to um, also address something you said, Diane. You, you opened up your remarks stating that euthanasia is not medical aid in dying. And as you rightly pointed out, in the United States, in the 10 jurisdictions plus Washington, D.C., 10 states plus D.C., where physician-assisted suicide is legal, um, uh, it is not euthanasia. And, and so when we talk about examples, as uh, Ewan raised from Canada, Rosina, who, who was euthanized because she was suffering existentially and, and saw no reason to go on uh, and didn't have the support she needed to keep living... Oh, it's easy for us in the United States to say, well, that's Canada, or that's Belgium or the Netherlands. It's weird there. We're only talking about physician-assisted suicide. This is the autonomous and rational decision to take the medications oneself. And yet, it's worth pointing out that at least twice in Oregon and once recently in California... A bill to legalize euthanasia was put forward. It, they were, all three were shot down. Um, and it may have been the case in other jurisdictions. But there is some momentum um, grounded in a disabilities rights logic, which says that if I'm unable to crush the pills myself and self-ingest, I have a right to appoint someone to crush those pills for me and feed them to me. And, and that's logical, right? If this is a right that we're saying people have and someone with um, a disability that prevents them from taking the pills themselves should then have a legal right to appoint someone. That is, they should have a right to appoint a euthanizer. 
but in all three times of the bills of which I'm aware, it's been shot down to date. Uh, but I, I just want to raise that and put that on the table, that when we're very quick in this discussion to dismiss arguments from Europe or from Canada because that's them and not us, we're not above the fray in any kind of way. And I want to just make it clear that the possibility of euthanasia, as it's understood the direct injection of a lethal substance to make a patient dead, that very much needs to remain on the table in this conversation as we talk about the United States. Thanks very much. Thank you. Kathleen, same for you, please. Hi. Um, good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for inviting me to participate in this conversation. I'm desperately trying to edit and cut back on my remarks because I didn't realize exactly what the format would be. But let me tell you a couple of things. Um, before going to medical school, I went to law school. And I worked as a lawyer. And when I went into medicine, I, I went into medicine with a commitment to patient autonomy and persons' rights to participate in their own health care decisions. I, I practiced general internal medicine, geriatrics, and palliative care. I'm a hospice certified doctor, and I work in a hospice unit at various times. I even make house calls. So I think my um, involvement in medical aid in dying comes out of a deep commitment to uh, care for patients. Um, more than many physicians, I've seen a lot of dying, and I think that death is not the worst thing that can happen to a person. Um, there are sufferings, physical, emotional, existential, that the best palliative medicine cannot relieve. I graduated from medical school in 1982, and the first 15 years of my practice of medicine was profoundly shaped by AIDS. And um, I could talk more about it, but I saw many AIDS uh, sufferers who suffered horrible deaths, and they saw their friends die, and they knew that what they faced. And it was actually a patient named David who became a good friend, who was a brilliant writer, who first introduced me to conversations about medical aid and dying. I um, followed the medical aid in dying death with dignity law in Oregon with great interest. And I um, know that medical aid in dying can be done in a legal, circumspect, careful, and ethical manner. In, in many ways, the issue of medical aid in dying is like the issue of abortion. Highly ethical, moral, spiritual, loving people have diametrically opposed views. Doctors and laymen are deeply divided, and they're often internally conflicted. Uh, the people of Oregon and the physicians of Oregon are as ethical as those of any other state in this country, uh, despite more than 25 years of support um, for uh, death with dignity or medical aid in dying. Uh, like the majority of the U.S. population, I support a woman's right to choose an abortion. Polls show that a majority of Americans support medical aid in dying. Um, Diane has eloquently um, laid out um, what states and jurisdictions uh, medical aid in dying is now available in. I, I see my role in helping patients through medical aid in dying as part of the continuum of care from health to the end of life. I believe that when the physician can no longer heal, then the physician has an obligation to respect the dignity of her patient and to relieve her suffering. 
uh, sometimes respect for patient autonomy and the duty to relieve suffering may lead to a patient's request for medical aid in dying. Not everyone who requests medical aid in dying qualifies or actually carries it out. But it's my obligation as a doctor to not close the door on their exploration and their questioning. It's my obligation to explore their concerns and try and adjust their fears. Um, the DC law is very similar to the laws of most other states. It's very carefully drafted to prevent abuse, mistakes, and haste. Some argue that they worry about a slippery slope effect, which is what we're partly talking about. But many philosophers, ethicists, and medical experts have demonstrated that that's a fallacy. There's no slippery slope. There are limits that we can place. Um, I would like to introduce a new concept to this um, conversation. Uh, you're all familiar, I think, with the idea that health care providers can claim a conscientious objection to providing a given service, such as abortion or providing a contraceptive. Here, I'd like to propose an alternative idea to the notion of conscientious objection to providing a legal service. And that idea is the principle of conscientious obligation. Uh, I feel that I have an obligation to respect a person's, a dying person's autonomy and carefully considered wishes. And that obligation may extend, if it's legal, in that jurisdiction where I practice, and I have licenses in Maryland and Virginia, and death with dignity, medical aid in dying is not legal in those jurisdictions. But I think I have an obligation to provide as painless and dignified and autonomous a death to those people who request it as I can. Um, and I want to say also that I don't just prescribe medication. The requester becomes my patient. Uh, I walk with that patient through the rest of their journey. Um, the first person, I, I, I'm, the, I'm finished. I'm I, I know, I saw you're on the last page. I just wanted to make sure. Okay. I'm, I'm skipping everything. I saw you were doing a really good job of jumping through I'm that. I'm sorry. That's okay. But the first person to uh, take advantage of the death with dignity law in the District of Columbia was a woman named Mary um, Dawson Klein, and she was an advocate for death with dignity. She suffered from ovarian cancer. And she came to me in March after the law became legal. She became my patient. She didn't die until the end of August. And I walked that distance with her. And I believe that uh, it was an affirmative obligation to help her. I'm going to end here. Sorry. That's okay. I misunderstood. Um, so I'll, I'll try to do more interrupting just so that we have a little bit of more of a flow. Um, but I'm going to do so respectfully. And I hope that you'll let me do it. But I'll just say very briefly... Um, what I hear is, is um, I think we're talking about two sets of decision makers here. One would be the individual who wants to take his or her life. The other is the doctor who's put in the position, do I get involved in this or not? I'm also hearing a clash of principles over um, how we are defining life, a disagreement over whether the slippery slope is a real thing or not. And to put it in... Diane's terms, her, her rallying cry to respect my choice. It's about individual choice. And I want to take that to you, Ewan, 
first. The, the, the argument that it's, it's the, the, let's take the doctor out of the situation right now. Let's even put it in a situation where an individual or we're able to prescribe to figure out a way to die painlessly on his or her own, um, which happens, unfortunately, all of the time. But let's say it's in the case of, of uh, illness and that person were to take his or her own, her own life. Is that wrong in itself, that death wrong, if the person makes that choice? And then let's bring it to the larger question of whether the person should be able to make the choice in the context of being assisted in doing so. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's very um, incisive logic, John, because you're absolutely right. The, there is a kind of set of ethics for all of us as individuals, and then there's certain kind of ethical obligations that fall upon doctors in particular. Uh, so... It's good to begin the conversation this way. It really comes down to the question of what Michael said. Can suicide be, be deemed rational? And inasmuch as suicide forgets the nature and depth of, of human value, it cannot be rational, I would argue. Um, because suicide uh, requires that you determine that it's better for you not to exist, that it's no longer good for you to exist. But if you have unconditional, unvarying, inherent, absolute value, then that can never be the case. And so when someone... Even if it's the person making the choice for him or herself. Yeah, because because the value that we have is not a function merely of whether we decide we have value. We all have that value, whether or not we believe we have that value. Because if, if it was the case that we value was just a function of us deciding for ourselves... Uh, whether we mattered or not, then it could never be the case that, you know, there's unconditional, absolute, universal human rights. Um, Okay, so... This this becomes the task is to remind people of their value. So I want to bring what's really your philosophical argument to Diane. And again, Diane, we we all know where you stand, what you want to have happen. I would just like you to respond to the philosophical argument that's being made that suicide, allowing a suicide, assisting in a suicide acts... These are notes from the opening statement that uh, you had made to act as if it's better that you do not exist. Do you, what, what's it, what is your response to the claim that in itself it's a devaluation of human life to decide that one person's ending can be engineered by either that person or others? You know, I have many friends who believe that strongly, who believe that the ending of one's own life should not ever take place. However, I have to tell you that when human suffering reaches such a point as it did with both my mother and my husband, to say that that individual has no right to say, I'm done. I've had a wonderful life, or I've been sick all my life, as my mother was, to want to end it and say, I no longer want to be here, is a God-given right. It is my life. And before I finish, just so you all know, I have chosen, thank you, Lord, Dr. Roth is my personal physician. 
Lydia, do you want to respond to that? Um, well, I, I think we sidestepped the question uh, with all due respect. So uh, re rephrase it. If you would like to bring it back to Diane, rephrase it. Yeah, so I'm wondering still uh, about the point that Ewan made about um, essentially extinguishing the value of the person through suicide or euthanasia. Um, how, how do you respond to that? Not, I understand about your language of rights, but what about this principle of, um, of, of the value of a person and um, the sort of unconditionality of that value that then is, is, um, is put out uh, through death, if death is inflicted? I, I wonder how you respond to that. If an individual, and I have known two now, are suffering from, for example, ALS, for which there is no cure, and that person is lying there, brain operating well, but bodily not one iota, and that person says to himself, my life is no longer worth living. I respect that decision and believe that if that person believes that, I will support him. So you and, and Lydia, you do not Respect that decision. Hmm. So you can go first. Yeah. Yeah. So it's so interesting because one of, one of the it's this is a this is an issue that is philosophically weighty, but then so emotionally weighty as well. So get to get to the truth, we have to be philosophical without also being cold and calculating. That's not always easy. Um, so I, f I feel the weight of, of everything you're saying, Diane. But there simply is no way to act as if someone, it's good for someone not to exist without also devaluing the person themselves. I can't call into question the value of your existence without also calling into question the value of your person. So you, you because, because when, I, when you say... Somewhat, something is valuable, what you mean by that is it's good that it exists. And what happens when, when people look at their lives and say, my life is no longer worth living, they're making their value contingent and dependent on the quality of their life, what they can do, how they feel, and so on. And I understand that, that, that living with such suffering is incredibly difficult. But I still think that for someone to then say, I should no longer exist and to act to extinguish their existence entails that they in and of themselves don't matter. Is, it was is that, the quality are, are, of life. Are you that saying that. that what they really want is for the pain to stop rather than to not exist? Is that? Yes. Yeah. Pain is down the list oh, is it? on why people so go on with that. die. It's like number four or five. Mm -hmm. At the top is lack of joy in living. And therefore, the idea that you are making a judgment about 
one's existence when I may say my existence no longer matters to me. That should be the ultimate decision. And I will add, I have already spoken with my family, with my doctors. I've made it very clear. And they have all weighed in. Can I, can I just make one, I just want to make one very quick point. If it's good, because I want to give Lydia a chance and yeah, Catherine yeah. to jump in. Just but I, I also have a feeling that we've sort of hit you know, stone bedrock on this one, sure. that there's just a conflict, a, a disagreement on values, but go for it. Just very briefly, I would say, if someone asked me, why, what is it that makes killing wrong? I would answer, well, I'll tell you what's wrong with killing, why I ought not to kill, if you can tell me why I ought not to violate autonomy. The same basis for, that we have for that feeling that we ought to respect choice and autonomy is the same basis for why we ought not to kill. It's because the value inherent in the person themselves. Lydia. But this is one life. It's my life. Yeah. So I just want to underscore something that Diane just said, which is that, and I think it's really important in a conversation like this that we make clear, in the United States at least, the number's different in Canada, uh, when interviewed for the reasons why people want lethal drugs, looking at Oregon and Washington, the states we have the most data from, only 27% of people say that they want lethal drugs because they're worried about pain. On the whole, it often comes up the language of suffering, but on the whole, our palliative care teams and the pain medications that we have available do wonders for patients. There's almost, no, we have, Michael could answer this, there's almost no pain we cannot um, treat. Uh, that brings to other questions of other suffering, but as Diane alluded to, most people in the United States say that they, uh, 87 to 90%, say that they worry about not being able to do the activities that give, give life meaning, mm -hmm. that they don't want to be a burden on others. So those are the things that are motivating people to end their lives through physician-assisted suicide rather than pain itself. And I just want to make sure that's on the table. Okay. In Canada, the number's 57% actually. I, worried I about just pain. want to ask on time, how far are we from audience questions? Because I want to get to some other, I'm coming to you. Sorry? Okay, so we will be coming to you for questions, but I want to move topics soon. So I am a practicing palliative physician and Michael can support this. We can manage to um, treat most people's pain. Mm -hmm. We can't treat everybody's pain. There are some symptoms, there's some pains where the only way to treat that pain is to give them basically, whether you call it palliative sedation, general anesthesia, sometimes you have to put people out. But most of the time we're able to treat pain. We can't always though, we can't always treat intractable nausea, which I think is one of the worst symptoms that people have. Uh, we can't People don't like pain treatment because it makes them lose their minds and they don't really want to finish by being uh, delirious with pain medication. But we do our very best to treat physical symptoms. Um, some things like ALS cause great reduction in dignity as well. But I... I most, in my experience, I think it's really important. People, 
Well, we're very Western in our analyses today because not everyone uh, in all the world, uh, all cultures would actually agree with either Lydia or um, Ewing. Ewing. Ewing, I'm so sorry. Uh, be, in terms of the value, the intrinsic value of life versus other values, including things like honor and dignity, which are other ways of maybe talking about autonomy. Um, so we, we need to realize that, and in our history, in the history of doctors, physicians, healing, um, the reason the Hippocratic Oath mentions specifically that doctors under the school of Hippocrates should not end a patient's suffering, should not help a patient end their suffering, is because at the time there were other schools of thought which had diametrically different teaching. And throughout history, doctors have helped their patients at the end. When they had a close relationship with the patient, when they cared about the patient, and when their patient was suffering. Um, Freud and his doctor, I think, is a very famous uh, example of that. So this is something that is, is, is part of our history as healers, helping people to go out gracefully at the end. And I do think we need to recognize that it is really important to have strict legal safeguards. It is a big deal to help somebody end their life. I have a lot of trouble writing these prescriptions. I'm up all night making sure that I've gone through everything and I've done whatever I can. I make sure that my patients are enrolled in hospice and that they have other ways that they are not alone, they're not lonely, they are not experiencing the kinds of problems that this sad I, girl I, in Canada did. So I think it's a big decision, but okay, I think I, I'm gonna, can agree I'm, to I'm, disagree. I'm going to jump in because I actually appreciate the testimony you just gave as a physician. I want to go to the two physicians here and get your reflection on what Catalan just laid out as somebody who is, 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 is partaking in the activity that the two of you definitely don't want to touch as physicians. Yeah, I think it's worth maybe picking up on the last thread of safeguards, uh, mm -hmm. which is to say that once you write the lethal prescription and someone has the bottle in hand, there's zero oversight. So I've learned relatively recently of two scenarios in the US where one legally is required to self-administer where the patients became incapable of self-administering and then insisted that a family member who, who didn't even believe in physician-assisted suicide then administer the drug, thereby killing them, right? Now, we can say, well, actually, no, that's physician-assisted, that's euthanasia, and it, it was more or less legal. But the, the fact is, is that once the prescription is written, there are no safeguards in place in any U.S. jurisdiction to monitor oversight of what happens to those drugs. So, um, you know, where, where, what, what my biggest concern with this, again, I, I do like self-determination. My biggest concern is what happens not only when the prescriptions are in the wrong hands, but more broadly, when patients in a jurisdiction that already has physician-assisted suicide illegal, I have to fight to keep patients alive, uh, to honor their wishes to live. What happens when it becomes 
far too easy to make patients dead. And that's what we see happening in Canada. For, for you as physicians, and I'm not saying this to be glib, but if there, if there were um, medical aid in dying as an over-the-counter device or prescription, that it would, if that existed in that world, if there were lower safeguards, whatever, we move to that point. But something that would take doctors out of the process would this be a different conversation for Isn't all that the gun at Walmart, though? Well, right? it's that's, what, that's what my, I Except mean. Except it's violent. Con- it's no, but conventional suicide is legal in every U.S. state. Mm-hmm. So, so why, why do physicians have to be implicated? But it's not just about implicating physicians. It's about what happens to society. Do we want to live in a society where my daughters, 11 and 13, that I always kid them, you know, I changed your diapers. You better be prepared to change my diapers. I don't want them to sit there saying, all right, mom, it's time to go. You know, let's get the maid, let's call the maid hotline and get get rid of you because you're an impediment on our career. You're an impediment on what we want to do. And that's that's what we see happening. There are parts of Belgium where euthanasia is one in seven. One in seven. I mean, what, at what point do we say enough well, it was is enough? Well, 3% of deaths in Canada. Yeah. 3.3% in 2021. Yeah. 2021. Yeah. Well, I, I want to bring in some of the experience of Canada. Um, again, to, Diane, in your, in your opening, you, you wanted to focus on what's happening here, what, what the rules are here, where the safeguards that you described were quite strict. But what we heard from you and, was, and, and also from Lydia was the slippery slope argument with the demonstrations coming from Canada, which, you know, we're, we're not Canada, but there's enough cultural overlap so that I think that there are lessons to be learned from Canada. And particularly, I want to ask you to take on the logic of euthanasia that was described by Ewan, where once... Once allowance is made for a certain regime, that the goalpost, he, he was arguing, is likely to move to include other people, more license, etc. And I felt that you were dismissing that possibility here, but I'm not sure. Or is that well, because you feel the safeguards are so, so safe? If it happens, it won't be in their lifetime. It took 10 years from the time Oregon's law was passed for Washington state to pass its law. When Joe and Diane and I began our documentary, there were only three states in the country that allowed for medical aid in dying. Now there are 10. There are discussions in 20 others, but it takes such a long time to bring legislators to or beyond the idea that there is this slippery slope. And in fact, we do not have a single report in any of the states where medical aid in dying is allowed, where a patient has been forced, where a patient has been taken beyond his will. We do have situations where, for example, with an ALS patient, the medication can be delivered rectally if one cannot swallow. That's in one state. And and that's 
allowed if the patient can push the plunger with an elbow or some part of his body. I do not see this slippery slope happening anytime soon in this country. Any response to that? I'd be happy to respond. You know, I, I think the, I, I, when, when euthanasia was first legalized, and I'll just call it assisted death because I understand we have trouble um, with, with that specific term. When assisted death was legalized in Canada, I was also quite skeptical about the slippery slope argument, and I never resorted to it. And my argument against the practice this evening has not been grounded in the slippery slope. Nevertheless, we have, I, I am amazed how slippery the slope has been. And, you know, I have lots of friends and colleagues who sat here, made the same arguments, and really believed this was the right thing to do. But that same commitment to autonomy and respect for patient preference is what motivates them to administer euthanasia because patients prefer euthanasia. Euthanasia-assisted death was legalized in California and Canada at the same time. Since 2016 in California, there's been just over 400 patients who sought assisted death. And in Canada, there's been uh, nearly 30,000. Canada and California have the same population. The difference is that in in, uh, Canada, uh, we legalize euthanasia as well as assisted suicide. And patients vastly prefer it. So if you really believe in autonomy and you really believe in respecting patient preference, then you'll administer the drugs for them because it's a lot more dignified than pushing drugs up your own rectum. But So it's the same logic, it's the same belief that death is good for you that has motivated this this slippery slope. And um, it really becomes an argument about... But the lower numbers in California would suggest the safeguards are working. Well, it's because patients don't want to, are reluctant to end their own lives. But my, my point is that it's inconsistent to believe in assisted suicide, but to deny euthanasia. Because, and over time, when people really embrace the idea that A, you ought to respect autonomy, and that B, the death is good for you, it's hard to resist euthanasia because it becomes discrimination. And the argument uh, for legalizing the euth- euthanasia for disabled people in Canada was that it was discriminatory that we wouldn't um, allow people who were suffering unbearably Sorry, just, and not at the end of the life. Disabled people who were healthy or disabled people who were dying? Uh, who were, they were not at the end of the life. They were, they were dis- disabled. suffering and living with chronic disability. Okay. And, the, and the argument for allowing it in their case was that it was discriminatory not to let them access this treatment for, for suffering. So if, if you, w- once you accept the fundamental logic, it gets very difficult to resist. I, I just want to clarify. So the, in the case of the disabled in Canada, the argument was not they were within six months of death or anywhere near death. It was that they were disabled and didn't. And it, yeah. It was, yeah. It, it in was, 2021, yeah. Canada did away with yeah. a foreseeable death. So death does not have to be reasonably foreseeable. Reasonably foreseeable was the language that was passed in 2016. Yeah. But in the, the jurisdiction started overturning that in 2017, 2018, and then in 2021, the whole country went to okay. death does Again, not. knowing and, that we're not in Canada, I want to ask yeah. Madeline what, what you think of that, of that movement. I'm not practicing in Canada. I know that the people that I've helped are really... Um, 
suffering and are really close to death. We are also a very violent country. Canada doesn't have the number of firearm deaths. And okay, but I think... Well, well, I think it's important to say that every country is different. We tolerate tremendous levels of violence in this country. And in medicine, we sometimes really also inflict quite a lot of harm on people. Okay, but that's, and I, and I, so I think the, the only thing I want to say is that I think it's part of a context. Uh, I'm okay, not sure fa- which question you're, you're asking me to address. Do I'll, I think I'll, there'll I, be a slippery slope here? No, no, I'm asking very specifically about, about a regime that, and again, it's not ours, it's Canada, and I can yeah. take it to you or, or to Diane, um, that, that includes the option for people who are not within, within sight of death, which, Diane, I believe your argument has been for people who are near the end of life. That is the current law. However, you know what I need to say, John? This has been going on for years. You've had doctors administering overdoses of medication under the operating table for years. Now, there is some legality placed on the rules by which people can ask for death. You know, maybe this will help a little. I, I, there are certain things that are settled in certain parts of this country, and there are other issues that are not settled here and are being debated, as I understand, in Canada, for example. Um, the issue of whether someone can make an advance directive uh, asking for certain things to be done or not done if they reach a certain level of dementia. Um, it's not legal in this country, as far as I know, in most jurisdictions. I don't think it's ever been held, upheld for a person uh, to ask for assisted dying if they become demented. And in some states, like New York, correct me if I'm wrong, Lydia, but I don't think that you can refuse feeding uh, in an anticipatory way if you become demented. Um, So people are struggling with these other kinds of questions. Like if the disability community arguments go both ways because the disability community is very sensitive about discrimination against them as well, but they would like to enjoy the same rights that everyone else has, so it's very difficult. But chronic pain, um, losing one's capacity to make decisions, those kinds of issues are being actively debated, and they, I think, are still being debated in Canada about dementia and requesting euthanasia in an anticipatory way. So these are going to continue to okay. engage us. I want to um, let folks now answer questions, and there's microphones to, on each side, but while you're getting in position, I, you and you've been very patient oh. waiting to jump in. Oh. I, I would, in, just in sincerity, Diane, I was wondering, I'd like to ask you a question about, about this. If, if there was someone who was profoundly disabled, and, but not at the end of, of life, and said, it's my life, it's my choice, 
I don't want to go on like this, but death was not reasonably foreseeable. How do you, what do you, do you think that, that they should be offered the choice to end their life? Or do you think that choice should be withheld from them? You know, I've never encountered anything like that. I don't know what I would say, except that if that person had absolutely no joy in life, if that person were in constant difficulty and constant pain, I would think that we should honor that choice. I don't know what kind of disability we're talking about. So I think it's very hard to make a generalization there. But I, th I think you can feel the, and I'm not accusing you of anything, but I just think we can feel the logic of the slippery slope there in that it's just, if you really think this is appropriate for end of life suffering, it feels very difficult to limit it to end of life suffering. But that's exactly what happened here in the District of Columbia. I spoke with Mary Che, the uh, person on the DC City Council who introduced end of life uh, rights here in DC. And she said that the medical community, the disability community was just, as Catalan had said, they were angry to believe that they would be singled out. And on the other hand, they were angry that they would be left out. Mm. So it's a tough question. Uh, let's go to some questions. And we're, we would just be interested, since the, we know there are so many medical students here, to kind of hear what you're thinking, if you don't mind letting us know that you're a medical student. But and if you're not, you don't, then it's voluntary. But why don't we start over there? And I, I have to say this. It's one question per person. Okay? So if you have a two-part question, choose one part, please. Hi there. Uh, my name is Sam. I'm an undergraduate student here at Georgetown University. Uh, thank you all for coming and speaking to us tonight. Um, one of the things that struck me most from this panel is learning that pain is not one of the top reasons for choosing physician or physician's aid in, in death. Um, and so I was just, and there's also been a lot of discussion of the personal choice and personal autonomy. And I'm just curious to hear reflections from the panelists on um, how this choice impacts uh, those outside connected to the patient, whether it's loved ones or the community, and whether making that choice and providing that option perhaps reflects a failure of those in the community to accompany one another in the end of our lives. May I answer that? That is one of the major reasons that Joe, Diane, and I created that film, When My Time Comes. It is because... Families do not discuss death. Nobody wants to talk about death. It is still considered taboo in this country. So if after this discussion, you go to your parents or your brother, your sister, your cousins, and you say, you know, I wonder 
to what extent you have thought about what a good death might be for you. Have you thought about how you might die or how you would like to die? All the people we interviewed for the film were asked one question at the end. What for you is a good death? And to a person, even a Roman Catholic priest, totally against medical aid in dying, said, I want to die at home in my own bed, surrounded by my friends and family. So talking about death is, I think, the greatest thing this panel can perhaps urge you to do. I'll just speak to the, uh, first of all, I, as an ICU doctor who has end-of-life conversations with families all the time about their loved one in the ICU, I just wholeheartedly That's endorse too what... too late well, in the ICU. Right, That's but I'm just saying way. I wholeheartedly endorse the need to have these conversations as a family well in advance. Uh, to, to respond to your specific question about the experience, it sounds, I think the experience is very variable. I know based on watching Diane's you know, beautiful documentary that it sounds like it was a, a good experience for, for their family. But I would also say if, if one of the things that's sort of emerging in Canada now as, as so many people have had euthanasia is, is that often people make this decision in isolation without involving their families. Mm -hmm. And so it becomes a very kind of complicated grieving process for families. And we're sort of having a moment of sort of gut check nationally uh, because we were about to legalize euthanasia for, for the mentally ill. And then there's sort of momentum to put the brakes on. And one of the things that's emerged about sort of why we need to put the brakes on a bit is because of how many families are, are struggling in the aftermath. And if you, for example, just Google um, a complicated grief in the Globe and Mail, which is a leading newspaper in Canada, published within the last few months, it sort of has a good um, description of some of the issues that families run into in the wake of this. Catalin, can you? Yeah. Can can can, okay. can I go to let you take the next question because I just want to keep the topics okay. moving. Okay, I will it, say something about his question after. Okay, it's very quick. Well, then say real quick now. Real the DC quick. law requires the doctor to certify that the patient has been asked to talk to their families about uh, what they're uh, asking for. And I have to certify that I have encouraged my patient to talk to my family, their family. And I have never uh, worked with anyone whose family wasn't fully supportive. Wait, can I have two seconds? Sure. In 2021, 1,721 Canadians elected to be euthanized because of loneliness. So that just needs to be on the table. Death always rips a hole in families. When we lose someone we love, it's always devastating. Right. But there are people who don't have anyone and therefore choose right. made. And so we just have to keep that on the table. Over to yeah. this side. Uh, George Vredenberg, I was a student many years ago. Uh, <laughs> uh, this question, I think, to Ewing, and it's just a simple question. Would, do you honor do not resuscitate orders? Absolutely. Yeah. So... There's a massive difference between withholding or withdrawing extraordinary measures um, versus deliberately and intentionally causing death. When I withhold or withdraw life support, 
It's never my goal to bring about the patient's death. I'm doing so because it is neither appropriate or effective to, to intervene with those kinds of measures. So absolutely, and, and I often am in the position, ironically enough, this evening of encouraging people to, to choose a DNR uh, status or even advising them that we're not just not going to offer ICU because it's going to harm them rather than help them. So Thank you. Thanks for the good question, by the way. Thank you. First two questions have been great, so thank you. Let's keep it up. Hi. I'm David, an undergraduate here. Thank you to all of the panelists for coming. My question has to do with the discussion of what it means that human life has intrinsic worth and if it is solely or even ultimately merely about keeping somebody alive to the point that it would be worth extending a life if it was characterized solely or mostly by pain or lack of joy. So I guess that question falls on me. So we have or, a couple hours. Or... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Semester. No, go for it. Okay. Um, I think, I think what, what having intrinsic value entails is that it would be wrong to act in a way um, so as to bring about the end of someone's existence because to do so would be deni to deny that intrinsic value. If people are dying naturally uh, on, on, on their own uh, through natural mechanisms, that's, that's not me causing their death. That's not me acting as if they don't matter. Um, so, so what we're really talking about is the question of whether it's appropriate to act in a way that says that it's better for someone not to exist. Did, did you feel that your question was fully answered? Because you talked a little bit about extension of life, but I'm not sure I was... Limited to one question. Yes. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you so much. No, that's <laughs> no, nobody does that. So thank you very much after. for that. Yeah, talk after. That's a great question. Yeah. Hi, my name is Jean, and I'm an undergraduate student here, actually studying death um, and dying. So that's kind of in my area of study. And on that point, I have a question about age and its relation to your thoughts on this. Um, last semester, I wrote a paper on like children's hospices for children and it was really enlightening um, and obviously very different. I feel like adds a different element. I'm curious for each of you as to how your age has contributed to. So we won't have time for everybody to answer the question, but, but can, you, can you narrow that question down to actually what it is you're sort of getting at? I'm wondering if how I and my peers feel at the age of like in our 20s is going to be different when we're like older. Okay, I would love to take that to Diane because you addressed the, the youth of the audience in the first place and you talked about your, your, you said you may be closer to the end than the people here. And also the personal examples that you shared of your mother and your husband were people who had lived long <laughs> lives by the time they had come to that crossing. So I'm just curious about your take on it. I think uh, considering children as I'm not quite sure whether you're talking about the issue of young children dying who are ill and have no choice themselves. Are you implying that perhaps medical aid in dying be allowed for young children who are not making their own choice. Am I misinterpreting you? That's just like something that, um, like an article that we read for class was about, like this new wave of having. So, so why don't we make that another, a chat after the conversation also, because I think we needed to be a little bit more clear and to the point, but thank you. Thank you very much. 
Um, let me come over to the other side. Is there anybody there? Um, yes. Hi, I'm Benji. Um, I work at Starbucks. Um, I, I wanted to express my fears. Um, I, I, actually, we really need a question. We, we really need the panelists to have a, the floor. It'll be a question. Okay, if you can get straight to it, we'd appreciate that. Okay, great. Thanks. So my question to the panels um, is, have you thought about how the state allowing death, endorsing death, and particularly with Canada in this discussion of people who are disabled might affect vulnerable, pop vulnerable populations, which not all medical doctors protect. And this is coming from the trans community. Okay. Yeah. Who would like to take that on first? Sure, I'm happy to. Please, uh, I mean, there's certainly precedent for concern worldwide. Again, I know we're U.S., but um, trans individuals in both Canada and Belgium who elected euthanasia because they were unhappy with the way their gender-affirming surgery turned out. There are twin brothers in Belgium born deaf. They, their ophthalmologist told them that they were at risk for blindness. So rather than anticipating a life of deafness and blindness, before they went blind, they elected to be euthanized together. They were 44. So we see this sort of phenomenon happening. There are many stories coming out of Canada now. A, a, a veteran and a para-Olympian athlete who uh, was asking for a wheelchair lift in her apartment, and instead the government offered euthanasia. Um, and then they did an inquiry of, of the Veterans Affairs offices and found that there were several more such instances where people were seeking help. There are a number of cases coming out of Canada of people who can't pay their rent, they can't pay their hospital bills, and so they're electing euthanasia. The final example, fashion industry, um, a big fashion chain put out a, a, a three-minute video, an advertisement about um, a beautiful exit in October of 22. Mm. And this woman who was featured in the beautiful exit, who, by the way, does not have a terminal illness, uh, had done an interview in June of 22 saying, I actually don't want to end my life, but I don't have the support I need to go on living. And so this phenomenon is very concerning. Um, will we see it in our lifetime? I think if euthanasia, if euthanasia is not legal in the U.S., we might not. But this is the concern, is that if you start with physician-assisted suicide and there have already been bills put forward to legalize euthanasia, we may very well end up there sooner than later. So thank you for that question. Would anybody, either of the, from the other side of the argument, want to address that before I move on to another question? Okay. Hello, my name is Natalie. Thank you all for being here. Um, could you expand on why or in what case physician-assisted suicide would be preferable to being put under until death naturally occurs? Can you take that on, Kathleen? Not every hospice will do palliative sedation or what we call, sometimes it's called terminal sedation. If people's suffering is very great, it needs to be done probably by an anesthesiologist or a critical care doctor with intravenous medication. Probably can't be done at home. Um, there are certain symptoms like intractable 
deprivation of oxygen from certain kinds of lung cancer, where people just experience suffocation in a prolonged way. For example, this is somebody I knew. And he was scheduled, actually, for terminal sedation in Colorado before uh, death with dignity was available there. Um, so there are examples, there are situations where the only alternative is basically to put somebody under general anesthesia. I should mention, though, we talked, Diane talked very briefly at the beginning about VSED, voluntarily stopping eating and drinking. And many people undertake this when they are confronted um, with a clear terminal illness, a terrible uh, quality of life, no more good days, lots of suffering, and uh, death with dignity is not available to them in their jurisdiction. So it is a, a route that people can take. And I don't know what Ewing and Lydia think about uh, VSED as, uh, it, it's not suicide like actually pointing a gun at one's head, but it is knowing that um, a prolonged fast will result in death. And I don't know what either of you think about that, if that helps you. Do you want to go first? Oh, sure. I'll, I mean, <laughs> so, so then you should distinguish with VSED whether you can do it on your own or whether you require sedation. So healthy people cannot stop eating and drinking on their own. You just can't. The, the drive to eat and drink is too strong. Uh, on the whole, right, we can make cases about extreme anorexia and nervosa and things like that, but on the whole, you can't. And so, uh, and then there are various gradations of illness. Um, I, I, I find the admission to the hospital for sedation, for voluntarily stopping eating and drinking, is similar to a, a complicity in, in suicide. Um, I know it's legal. But um, I, I would put that in the same in the same sort of camp. Whereas if a, if a person is is really late stage Alzheimer's or a, a variety of other illnesses, people can just they don't want to eat or drink anymore, and so it's natural not to eat and drink. And yes, um, that does hasten death. But I don't think either of us would push artificial nutrition and hydration on such but individuals. And it's what your husband did, is not. That's exactly what he did, and I must say, the morning. I came in after he had made his decision. He looked wonderful. And I said, sweetheart, what have you done? You look fabulous. He said, I've begun the journey. I haven't had anything to drink, nothing to eat, and I feel wonderful. I'm going to jump in because... I've been looking for some positive sentence on which we could finish this thing. And we have hit time. And I want to thank the doctor and the doctor and the doctor and DR. Um, I, I, very good. Very I, good job. I, I, <laughs> and um, I also want to say this was a really, really tough conversation, but I so appreciate, first of all, everybody who asked questions, including the questions that I passed on. Um, come on up and, and join us. I just wanted to make sure that we were getting into something with clarity so that uh, the uh, panelists could talk about it. So uh, forgive me for passing. Um, and I also want to say I so appreciated the way the four of you did this. You were not trying to score points. You were, you were listening. You were explaining. And uh, that's stuff I learned from Diane Reeves oh. by listening all these years. Uh, so thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you all. Thank you, John.
That was Diane Ream, Dr. Ewan Golliger, Dr. Lydia Dugdale, and Dr. Kathleen Roth. The moderator was John Donovan. And you can find more podcasts from past events and the symposium at lannon.georgetown.edu. I'm Aminata Fauna. Until next time, goodbye.